Well, good morning, church. My name is Justin, one of the elders, uh, pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, we're glad you're here to worship uh, Jesus with us because he is worthy of all of our praise. And this weekend has been a sweet, sweet time together. It's been our mission weekend uh, here at the church. Been running things, uh, different, hearing from different speakers and worship times and learning opportunities Friday night, all day yesterday, and now kind of culminating this morning. Uh, this is why I wore this shirt. Uh, this is the closest thing I had to mission Sunday. This is Safari, Justin. So come with me. Uh, we are, but man, we are excited. Uh, I'm excited because I don't have to speak this morning. So I get to just listen with you all and be encouraged. Uh, we had a brother come from Galena. Chris Kopp is, is down from Galena to be here with us. A great speaker, travels, speaks, as well as a, a pastor up at Galena Bible Church. Village of 500 people. So it's not often you have someone come to Soldatna to speak and they feel like this is a metropolis, right? He was just staring at our McDonald's like, you lucky, right? <laughs> But man, I'm excited to hear the word uh, from Chris this weekend, culminating Mission Weekend. We want to thank, uh, this has been an awesome weekend, uh, guests have traveled here to speak, uh, but also uh, one gal in particular, this Mission Weekend would not have happened if not for Mindy Loring. So let's give it up for Mindy. Working tirelessly to put this whole thing together, organizing speakers, putting on the event. In the meantime, she's been subbing for Corey Armstrong, who's been in Anchorage with her son, Zach, battling leukemia. She said, I can't wait till mission weekend's over, so all I have to do is teach full-time and raise my kids and start a new... Yeah, it's okay, Mindy. We'll pray for you. But man, we are excited. Uh, Chris is going to come. He's going to open the word. And he's going to invite us into some hard things as we talk about uh, what does it mean to be on mission? What does it mean to be a part of what Jesus has not just invited us into, but as our commander in chief, he sent us out to do. And so I, there's some hard things we're going to look at this morning. That's why I inve- invited a guest speaker to say those things. You can get mad at him. Uh, but man, no, we uh, are excited to hear the word uh, from Chris. So if you please, along with me, give a warm welcome to Chris Kopp. Well, what a privilege to get to be with you guys, and uh, it's been a great, a great uh, conference, and um, just being encouraged in the Word. My name is uh, Chris, um, and I pastor the Galena Bible Church. Um, somebody did it earlier today, asked Galena, you can drive there, right? And I said, nope, you're thinking of Glen Allen. Uh, Galena is, if you draw a straight line from Fairbanks to Nome, we're the exact halfway point of that line. We're closer to the Arctic Circle than we are the nearest Walmart. And um, we've been there 12 years. Um, I've been the pastor there at Galena Bible Church for 12 years with my wife and four kids. Um, I'm originally, I was born in Anchorage, which is close to Alaska. You can see Alaska from Anchorage. It's like 45 minutes in any direction. You're in pristine Alaska. And I will say, when I moved out of Alaska in 94, Anchorage was a lot more Alaskan than it is now. There wasn't a Walmart there, and there was a lot more blue tarps around than I remember uh, now. But I moved from Alaska to Louisiana, so you want to talk about a culture shock on that, and that was God's graciousness towards me there. I felt the call to ministry, met my wife, had three out of our four kids there, and then God called me from planting a church in South Louisiana up to Galena in January of 2011. It was 72 degrees when we got off there, when we got on the plane in Louisiana. It was 46 below zero when we stepped off the plane in Galena. Uh, coldest temperature, no joke, that we've experienced there was negative 70. Uh, what that means is it can warm up 100 degrees and water stays frozen. 
uh, and just going like, what in the world uh, are we doing in that? So I don't watch TV because the only thing on TV is reality shows about Alaska and Louisiana. <laughs> and I've done both of those. Uh, we are Duck Dynasty meets Yukon Men. And what everybody calls reality television, my teenage boys call Tuesday. So we don't, uh, we don't watch TV. Um, that's a little bit about me. Today we are going to be walking through some of the stuff uh, that we walked through this weekend because it is significant things. These are actually things that do keep me up at night as we think about uh, the Great Commission and our responsibility as followers of Jesus to walk in obedience to Christ's command to go and make disciples of all ethnos, of all nations, of all peoples. And so as we take a look at the global perspective of what it is that God has called us to do, last night as we were gathered together for the conference, I shared about the question of what does it mean to be sent, or why do we have to be sent as individuals into the world? And part of it is this dichotomy that we have of our fierce individualism uh, as Western peoples. I don't know if you know this about yourself, but sociologists that have been studying peoples around the world have said that the present moment that we live in, Western culture, is the most individualistic society of humanity that has ever existed in human history. We are the most fiercely independent people. I, I personally, I don't think Alaska would actually vote Republican if there was actually an, a, a libertarian candidate, because really Alaskans are just saying, leave us alone. Right? That's, that's, really what, that's really what most Alaskans are really voting for, is just leave us alone. Let me do what I want to do. Right? We are fiercely independent. We think we can fix anything, uh, if, as long as I got some duct tape. Right? We're good. We, we, can, we can fix just about anything. And that fierce independence, as it comes to us in the Great Commission and that kind of thing, for a lot of people, there's this sense of going like, well, that's somebody else's job. That's not, that's not my job because that doesn't fit into my paradigm and what I'm supposed to be doing. But here's the thing about the Great Commission. When Jesus looked at his disciples up on that hill before he ascended into heaven, and he looked at them and he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So you, you guys, go and make disciples of all nations. And then he concluded it by saying, and teach them to obey all things I've commanded you. Which, oh, by the way, those that are made disciples that are, we're supposed to teach to obey all things, one of the commands that he gave was, go and make disciples of all nations and then teach those disciples to obey these things, which happens to be go and on and on, generation upon generation, down to us, church, where he looks at us and says the same thing as all the other commands that he gives to us. Our command is to go and make disciples of all nations. So one question we've been looking at this weekend is, how have we been doing at that? Before we get into our key texts that we're going to be looking at in Acts, I just want to ask the question, how, how are we doing when it comes to fulfilling that, com that uh, uh, great commission of Jesus Christ to us? How are we doing when it comes to making disciples of all nations? Or uh, in another context, when Jesus is talking about the end of all things, uh, and they say, when, Jesus, when will these things happen? And he says, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all peoples and then the end will come. So there's this big overarching uh, theological premise that exists in that. So how are we doing about that today? Well, this weekend we took a look at even some visual representations of some things called people groups. 
A people group is a, uh, an ethnic group of people. They tend to look the same, speak the same, some, for the most part live in the same geographic location. They're kind of in the same socioeconomic strata uh, of an ethnic people group there is, that is distinct of them. They are definable. They're not defined by necessarily borders. Sometimes those people groups exist in two different countries that a border runs through and those kind of things. Sociologists have defined that there have determined that there's about 17,000 people groups that exist in the world. Some of those are very, very small. Other those reach close to uh, uh, several million people that are in those people groups. And missiologists have taken those people groups and they've asked the question: What does it mean for a people group to be unreached? Meaning that that people group has so few gospel-believing people that exist in it that, based upon the the rate at which people humanity dies. Uh, that it is an unsustainable amount of people that live in there to perpetuate the gospel based upon the way that number of people die. And they determined that that was, if there was less than 2% of the population was gospel believing, that that people group was defined as unreached. So only 2% of a billion or, of, um, you know, several million people or whatever, followers of Jesus Christ, uh, is classified as an unreached people group. And currently today, missiologists say that there are over 7,000 unreached people groups in the world today. Literally an entire ethnicity of people that within that population, they don't know one single Christian that they know. It's not there. Entire languages and cultures and art and things that are tied up in a, in a, in a people group that don't know Jesus. So that's an unreached people group, over 7,000 of those. Of those 7,000, they say that there are uh, about 3,600 and change unreached unengaged people groups, meaning that unengaged is saying that there is little to no missionary or church planting endeavor that is taking place in that to shift that margin, to introduce people to this good news of Jesus Christ that has radically transformed our lives. 3,600 people groups that there is no significant work of that. And one of the most disturbing for me is that missiologists have said that there is uh, about 350 people groups that in the 2,000-year history of Christianity have never known one single Christian in their population. The work is not done. Billions, and we just crossed over 8 billion people on the planet, and billions and billions of people will be born, live their entire life, and die, and never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will never show up. It will never show up on their radar. So how are we doing with the Great Commission? We're not done yet. That's the, that's the honest truth of it. We're not, we're not done with it. Some other things about that, those are gigantic numbers. I want to give you just a couple of little tangible things that you can chew on as it um, looks at that. One of the things that has changed within Christianity, as we kind of look around this room, we see people that kind of look and dress somewhat similar to us and act similar to us. And so we can, if we're not careful, we can get this idea, well, this is what Christians look like. They look like, they look like this. And for about a thousand years in church history, if you took all Christians in the world and you averaged them out into one person, they averaged out to be a white man in his early 30s that was living in Europe. That was what, for about a thousand years, that was what the average Christian in the world averaged out to. And in the last hundred years, that paradigm has shifted to where today, if you average all the Christians in the world into one person, you get about a 14-year-old sub-Saharan African girl is the average Christian in the world today. 
The church looks very different than we think about it. And I'm, I'm kind of excited about it because there's going to be one day when we look into the, the kingdom of God and we see this multitude that is surrounded around the heavenly throne praising God in their own languages. Just think about that. There's aspects of culture that will make it into eternity. That's a pretty cool thing. And so as we think about that, there's going to be a bunch of people that are going to be worshiping God that look nothing like me. And I'm so incredibly thankful for that. Some people get really big into genealogy and looking back, you know, they find, oh yeah, my, you know, my great-grandfather came over on this thing and they, you know, uh, passed the, uh, you know, Statue of Liberty and all that. And I got into that and I studied and studied and studied. And I went back the earliest. I have a, an ancestor that immigrated to the U.S. was pre-Revolutionary War. And they all came from England. So literally, if you want to know what an Anglo-Saxon looks like, it's me. It's me. And the, the beauty of this is that there's aspects of culture and things like that. That Did you know that my ancestors were pagans that worshipped trees? And they didn't know Jesus. And somebody risked their life to go and share the gospel to them. One of the most massive missionary movements that has ever taken place within Protestant evangelical circles. There still is not a Christian movement even today that has sent more missionaries than this group. Anybody know who it is? They're called the Moravians. Probably have never heard of them unless you've been out to the Bethel region. The city of Bethel was named by Moravian missionaries. They got their boat stuck on there on a day they were reading in Genesis where it says, Arise, let us go to Bethel. They got their boat stuck and said, I guess we're here. That's how Beth, I'm not joking. That's how Bethel got his name. Uh, but at the height of the Moravian missionary movement, no joke, one in four Moravians was a career missionary. One in four. They were selling themselves into slavery in the Caribbean so they could evangelize amongst the slave populations that were in that place. A lot of their funding came by a man by the name of Count Zinzendorf, and he would commission, have a commissioning service for the missionaries. He would have this highly motivational speech. He would say, go, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Amen! Right? <laughs> and here's what they did. They got up. They went. They preached the gospel. And I preach in a church in Kenai and say, Moravians. And everybody goes, who? But they faithfully preach the gospel and have shifted that context into where there's now people groups in the world that will worship Jesus because these people laid down their lives for the gospel. Christian persecution is another one that's interesting. We, we, you know, we hear sometimes the news talks about Christian persecution and things that are going on in the world today. Uh, in the last 100 years, more Christians have been martyred than in the previous 1,900 combined. Sometimes we get really agitated because we feel like, you know, we're being persecuted because they're making us wear masks. Nobody's shooting you. It's not the same. And our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, it costs them dearly. There are brothers, literally, right now, in this moment, there are Christians huddled in a dark room because they don't want to turn on the lights so the people might hear them. And they're singing, but they're singing in a whisper because they don't want anybody to hear. Because if they hear, they'll die. And probably their family will die too, but they don't care. They love Jesus and they want to be together. That's happening in the world right now, today. 
One thing I'm incredibly excited about when you talk about missions, you know, you want to lead people to Jesus, but you don't want to just leave them just, okay, hey, cool, your eyes are, yeah, everybody raise a hand, they're all that. You want to see them matured in their faith and discipled, and you want to see the church established and indigenous leaders there, and then you want to see that church get to the place where it's healthy enough that it's sending out missionaries, starting new churches, engaging that. One of the ones I'm the absolute most excited about is in the last 30 years, the fastest developing church in the world from non, no, no believers to now sending missionaries is the church in Mongolia. In 1990, there were four Mongolian Christians living in Mongolia. Four. Today, there's over 40,000 of them, and they are sending missionaries to the United States to evangelize amongst unreached people groups that live here. When you look at a conversion map of looking, if you imagine the world map and imagine a heat map where it changes based upon the question you ask, and you ask the question, where are the most people coming to faith in Jesus every single day anywhere in the world? And the heat map for the last five years has radiated in Iran, a place where it is still very costly for them to come to know Jesus. The job is not done. When we talk about unreached people groups, India has the most, hands down, they've got gobs and gobs of unreached people groups. Uh, they just reclaimed the position of having the most people living within their borders this, uh, about the last month, the census data came of that. Uh, China is number two, they've got the second most. Anybody want to guess what the third country that has the most unreached people groups in it is? It's the United States of America. What? This is a result of what's known as the global diaspora, the fact that the world has shifted and changed. Remember I said uh, unreached people groups mostly are defined by a geographic area, but because of war and immigration and uh, mobility and jobs needed and those kind of things, you don't think about going to Atlanta, Georgia and meeting Somalis. You don't think about going to St. Louis, Missouri and running into Afghanis, but that's the way that the world is working. And so within the United States, we have unreached people groups that live. Right in Kenai Soldatna, there are uh, ethnic unreached people groups that live here that come from people groups that are defined as unreached. They don't know Jesus. They have no churches. And they are your next door neighbors and you shop with them every single week. The world is different. And so last night we took a look at what does it mean for us to be sent and to go and why do we have to be, why do we have to be sent? Why can't I just do what I want to do? And we emphasize the point of saying, listen, this task is not going to be done if we're just by ourselves. If we're just, you know, me and myself and the, the, the maverick uh, American or maverick Alaskan Christian that says, I'll conquer the world. Just, just give me some duct tape and a Bible and we got this thing covered. It's not going to get done. And it's not just going to get done even if we just emphasize the nature of people need to go, people need to go. What needs to happen is that we need to see churches that have a heart to send. A church that has a heart to send. If there's a paradigm, I believe very firmly that we've messed up in a lot of different uh, missiological and church structures, it's this. Disciples make disciples. Churches plant churches. Disciples make disciples and churches plant churches. And the way that we see that playing out through Scripture is what I want to take a look at uh, this morning. Take a look with me and grab your Bible on Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, starting verse 19. We're going to be looking at the church in Antioch. It's one of my favorite churches to look at because I'm so grateful for the church of Antioch because you and I stand here today as a direct result of the faithfulness of the church in Antioch. They show up a number of different times in, in, the, in the story of Acts. 
Um, one of the most prestigious ones. They are referred to as, uh, we were first called Christians in Antioch. Christian is actually a derogatory term. It meant little Christs. And so the, those that are outside were looking at and said, oh, look at all those little Christs. And the little Christs were like, I'm cool with that. You can call me whatever you want, man. I, he's, he's my Jesus. I'm, I'm you know, you, you, you know, dog on me however you want to. And so I'm so thankful for them, but we're going to see how, in a little bit, how they touch you today directly. And as we think about this church, uh, and we think about the, the engagement that they, they have, I want you to, as you read these words, I want you to think about Antioch, and then I want you to think about Peninsula Grace, and ask God, what do you want me to hear today? Acts chapter 11, verse 19 says this, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord, and news of, uh, news of them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. This is the word of the Lord. Let me give you just a real quick context if you're not real familiar with the story of Acts. So remember Jesus is ascending back to heaven and he tells his disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, and that fulfillment of the great commission and this eccentric reign. He says, stay in Jerusalem and the helper will come to you. They have that moment of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes down upon them and uh, they're filled with the Spirit. They begin to speak in languages that are not their own, but the, the Jews that have gathered from all over the world are there and they hear the gospel preached in in their own language, it's literally a reversal of Babel that is taking place in that. And, and a mass group of people come to faith in Jesus. 3,000 people were saved and baptized in one day. The church of Jerusalem was born. And you could just imagine. Could you imagine just the excitement that would have had to have been happening? And they're just like, holy cow, it's happening. It's worth it. This is the kingdom. This is what Jesus said. We need to start discipling. We need to start praying. We need to be eating at homes. And that's what we read happening there. And as we're reading that, and oftentimes people look at the book of Acts and they say, we need to get back to the book of Acts. We need to get back to the way that things were there. Understand this, they were being sort of faithful to what Jesus said. Jesus did say, yeah, you know, make disciples, methetes, learning apprentices, teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. But it was a scattering send that he said. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, other post parts. But man, we got this big church and this big thing and it's so great and it's so wonderful and all these kind of things. And they weren't being obedient to Jesus. They weren't leaving. They weren't going out. They were teaching and discipling and loving and all these kind of things and enjoying this fruitful. I mean, just, could you, I mean, just the, the ex, uh, excitement of that moment had to just been palpable in the sense of that. But they weren't being obedient to go. And so what does God do? God causes great persecution to fall on them when Stephen, one of the deacons of the church, was charged with being a heretic. And he gets up and he begins to preach the, the Old Testament and he tells the gospel story starting from, uh, starting from Abraham and, and on and down it is. And when he gets to Jesus and he looks at them and he says, and you killed him. You killed him. This is the Messiah we've been waiting for and you killed him and they stoned him. And great persecution erupts and it forces the church out of their comfort zone and they have to flee. They have to run. And that's what we see there in verse 19 when it says that those that were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, they made their way around. But something distinct happened. As they're going, they're being, uh, again, 
partially obedient. They're sharing the gospel with people that they meet, but it says something very distinct. It says that they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. They were preaching to those that looked like them, uh, had political leanings like them, ate the same things that they did, dressed the same way that they did, engaged life the same way that they did, that they understood, that they could connect with. It was an easy connection. And as they're traveling in a world that at that time, was a, Rome was a melting pot even in its own day. And it says specifically, they weren't doing it. So yes, they were, they were kind of being obedient to what Jesus said, but they were ignoring everybody else around them. And so this morning, I want to ask a big overarching question. What, is it, what does it take for us to become a sending church? What does it take for us to become a sending church? And the first question of that is this. What would happen if we reached the people around us, not just like us, with the gospel? What would happen if we reached the people around us, not just like us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what this looks like. Begin praying that God would give you supernatural eyes to see people. Now, I'm not meaning that like when you see somebody, if they're good or bad, they radiate black or light or something like that. I'm not talking about that. When I'm saying, God, give me supernatural eyes to see people, what I mean is, when I see another human being, I actually see an image bearer of God. When I'm driving down the road, God, give me eyes to not just see, ah, there's another bum. God, there's a man made in your image who desperately needs Jesus. When I'm checking out at the grocery store and the checkout person's kind of grumpy because it's the end of their shift and they've maybe even pulled a longer shift and they, were, they didn't get their lunch break and they're being a little snooty and snippy and they're really the cog in the wheel that's stopping me from getting to that cup of coffee that I'm going to get enjoy on the way out there and on the next thing. And so I'm just looking, you're just the cog. Well, hurry up, come on, what's wrong with you? God, give me eyes to see that they're not a cog to serve me, but that they're an image bearer of God. C.S. Lewis said it this way, he said, you have never met a mere mortal. He says, every person that you've ever met, when you see them, if you could see them right now in what they will be into eternity, you would either be tempted to worship them in all of their gloriousness, in all of their magnitude and splendor into eternity, or you would shrink back in horror for what they become. You've never met a mere mortal. So God, give us eyes to see the people around us, not just like us. Because here's the way that things default to be. We gravitate towards people that are like us. We get into small groups. You know, you get in that age. How many, how many of you guys, if you've been in church a long time, you know, you were in youth group, and then you, you graduated, and then they had, I don't, know if this, I don't know how this church is structured with this, but any of you guys were part of a church that had a college and career program? It's 19-year-olds and divorced 50-year-olds. <laughs> and you're just kind of like, all right, we're going to go to a Gaithers concert together, so I don't know what we're, we're going to do, right? You know? 
how are we going to do Some of you guys didn't get that joke. But anyways, like, you, you know, and you're just kind of like, oh, it feels weird. So what do we, we want to, we want to have a college ministry. And then we want to, you know, we want to have a couples ministry because the college ministry, if you put enough college kids together, they start marrying each other, right? You know, hey, we had a college thing and then, but then they start having kids and then it gets awkward because everybody wants to go out late, but the ones that kids can't, you know, and so we got to have another young, young parents couple, you know, and on and we segregate these off because then we get to into these peoples that are just like us and they're in the same stage and they're all these kind of things. And then we wonder why we get to be parents and we have no idea how to parent because we're not around any other people that have been past this point, right? And we start saying things and we go, I'm now my dad, you know? Those kind of things, because that's, that's the best you got. Or it might have been the worst you got, depending on where you came, you know, what your background was. And we're so segmented away from it and we just lose perspective of other people that vote differently than us. Look differently than us. Eat differently than us. Have different rhythms. What would it take if, if we said, God, give us eyes to see the peoples that live around this church and the communities around there. And Where do we touch that? Last, week, last night we, I asked the question, I said, who owns the lostness of that neighborhood over there? That neighborhood right over there Jesus is going to one day say, I said go and make disciples of all nations. Who does he look at and say, you were disobedient? Because somebody, somebody's going to be 7,000 unreached people groups. Somebody's going to stand before Jesus and, got, and he's going to say, I said go make disciples of all nations. You were disobedient to that. You broke that. You didn't do that. Who owns that lostness? Well, they're not like us. Or that's the hippie town or whatever. They're, you know, they're going to be kind of strange. They might smell funny in church or whatever, you know, whatever it is. What would happen if we reached the people around us and not just like us with the gospel? That's what these guys did. They were all going to preach to the Jews, but they, these guys from Cyprus and Cyrene, they came to Antioch and they began to speak to Greeks. Greeks were strange to Jews. Very politically different. Food culture, way different. They did smell funny. All those things. And they said the gospel of Jesus Christ is for them. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for them. God, give us eyes to see the people that are around us and not see them just as your coworkers and things like that as a cog in the wheel for your own individualism of, I got this project I got to get finished. I got this job that I got to get finished. I gotta get, if I'm a teacher, I got to get these kids so they can pass their standardized test and move them through the system. And God, give me eyes to see people into eternity, to see them as those that one day I'm praying I would get to see around that throne with me. That's one way we become ascending church. Secondly, in verse 27, it says this, Now at this time, some of the prophets, they came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. This, is the, I mean, this, this has never happened before. Gentiles coming to faith in this radical. Even the Pentecost, those were all Jews. They were ethnically different. They came from all over the world. That's why the disciples were speaking to them according to their, their dialects of where they were coming from. But they were still all Jews. Up until this point, this was still a Jewish religion. And at this point in Antioch, it broke out of that mold. And people were going like, can, can Gentiles come to 
faith? Can they become? And they began to get excited about it. And they, they sent Barnabas down there to talk to them and find out what was going on. And it was good and it was right. And, and they said, we need, we need discipling. We need help. We need some more people to come and teach and coach. These guys don't even know the Torah. They don't know the Old Testament like the Jews do. And so we need people to come and teach them the Scriptures and grow them up and mature them in the faith. And so they, these prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, verse 27, verse 28. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over the, over the world. And this did take place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion of, uh, that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did by sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So this is one of these passages. This is, you know, it sounds like this is a really short period of time. This is one of those times in Scripture, in your foundations class, you're talking about how, to, how do you read the Bible. There's times in the Bible where it's just a play-by-play, and this happened, and this person, this thing took place. And then there's other times where the drone goes woo, way up in the sky, and you see this huge swath of time condensed down into a few verses. That's, that's what's going on here. It says that this... Uh, spiritual leader prophet came down and literally had a word from the Lord that came to them that there was a, a warning going to take place that a famine was going to happen there. Uh, and Luke, the historian that writes Acts, says this actually did happen. You can look it up. It happened in the reign of Claudius and when was there. And everybody was suffering across the world. This famine that took place was taking food from around the world and there. But it was especially impacting the church, the Christians that were in Judea. And the reason for that was these are those that were still as close to that uh, Stephen stoning experience as anybody else. They had not scattered as far as others were. So these Christians were still in the control of the Jewish leadership that was there that was doing their best to stamp out the Christians. And so these Christians were enduring incredible hardship. They had lost their farms, had been taken from them. Many of them had been imprisoned. Some of them had been beaten and killed uh, as a result of their profession of faith in Jesus. And so that church began to uh, garner whatever support it could according to the means that any believer that was there, let's figure out ways to help them. Some of them had more means, others had less means, but regardless of what it was, God used them in a way to garner support and send it there to support this other church so that it could sustain this hard season and continue to be faithful to what it was that God called them to do. So the second question I have for us today is, what would happen if we leveraged our resources for the benefit of other churches? What would happen if we leveraged our resources for the benefit of other churches? Now, this is one of those hard ones within Western context because that fierce individualism that we have as individuals, we have somehow managed to broach into the greater church context. This is my church, and this is our church, and this is our ministry, and this is what we do, and this is the scope that we work in, and those kind of things. Yeah, we know there's other churches, but this is my church, and my, you know, that kind of fierce individualism, a protective nature to it, and those kind of things. And the question that he's asking there is he's taking, they're helping them take their eyes off of their present moment and give in such a way that it, other than the feel goods that it gives to them, benefits their church in no way. They're giving away to the other church so that it flourishes and grows and is able to accomplish the task that God has for it. 
to do. Churches, as you look around and evaluate them, I know I, I chatted with a couple people and they're saying, how long have you been a part of this church? Oh, we're just, you know, not here for real long. You know, just, we've been here maybe two months or this is our second Sunday or we've been here six months or some people that have said, I was, you know, I was a teenager here and, you're, you know, your pastor and these kind of things have been here forever, right? Uh, and the, the, the challenge of church shopping is awful. And some of you guys ought to just give an amen to that. That's just, you know, nobody likes doing that. But here's the deal. If you come to Galena, Galena is a Roman Catholic village. I mean, historically, it's been Roman Catholic. So we're known as the other church. That's what we're known as. If you're not Catholic and you want to go to church, we're your option. I am simultaneously the best and worst preacher in Galena every Sunday. And what I found as I was uh, moving from Louisiana and planting a church down there into this context where it's like, I'm it, we're it, you know, our church is it, in that, in that sphere of things, I didn't realize the pressure that I felt as a church leader uh, in, the, in the South, and I'm 100% sure it's the same here, of this pressure of, do they like it? Is the kids' program engaging enough or exciting enough? Their kids are so excited. Is the youth program happening? Got things going on. Keep my kids busy so they stay out of trouble, right? Does the music, is it too loud? Is the coffee good? You know, whatever. The joke's funny. Whatever it is and all these kind of, And you feel this burden that's there because if they don't like it, what do they do? How many churches did you drive past on your way here this morning? get to rural Alaska, you get on a boat and start driving down the river, you'll pass villages before you'll come to another one that has a gospel-believing church in it. Our conservative estimate, conservative estimate, 80% of the villages in rural Alaska don't have a gospel-believing church in it. That doesn't mean there's not believers there. It doesn't mean there's a missionary, not a missionary work there. But an established church gathered together, regularly carrying out the ordinances of Scripture, admonishing each other in love, and having somebody that stands up and says, thus says the Lord, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. 80% of Alaska is not happening today. There's a lot of churches that exist as museums to how good God was. Point back to, oh, I remember back, right? 1956 ever comes around, we'll be ready. We got that year licked. I'll show you the plaques of all the things that happened in the past. And it's not that memorializing and remembering is bad, but at that point, those kind of churches, the pastor just becomes the tour guide, pointed out. You pay your, pay your due so you can hear how good God was. But you swing the pendulum to the other side, and I call those Dave and Buster churches. You guys know Dave and Buster's? That wasn't in Alaska in 94 either, I'm telling you. Um, you go into there and it's exciting, engaging, right? Go in and you play the games and it's, it's flashing and it's, you know, it's, you know, yeah, it's chicky, tuck, your Chuck E. Cheese for people trying to date, you know, it's, it's kind of what it is, right? You know, uh, it's just a casino, is all, that's really all it is, you know? Uh, and you know, and you play the games, and then you get frustrated. The game doesn't work, and it doesn't take your card. It doesn't do the thing you're supposed to do. And I didn't get my tickets, so now I'm gonna fuss with it. You know, and I get angry at the people because it doesn't give me the stuff that I want out of it. Let's just be honest. There's a lot of churches that their entire structure model is that. Do they like it? Do they love it? We're military field hospital. That's really what we are. Broken and wounded people coming in. They don't stay here. 
We want to get him back in the fight. That's what this picture is. And we see other churches that are struggling. We see other churches around the world that, that need help. And we say, God, what, what do we have? How, how, do we, how do we cut the margins? Do you guys know? I mean, I'm going to get some people mad at that. Do you know that tithing is not a, it's not a New Testament principle? It's a very Old Testament principle. And in fact, tithing was not the actual part of it. That was just, you cut 10% and you give that. And then God said, and leave the edges and corners. And as you're carrying the stuff, if something falls down, don't pick it up. Why? Because there are widows and orphans and the alien amongst you who need... And here's the part that blows me away on that. You think of that picture of the agrarian society, the, the edge of, that they had around there. And he says, don't cut the edge, don't cut the corners. But he des doesn't specify how deep that's supposed to be. So you can picture this as him saying, listen, it's up to you. You want that to be, there's one plant. Very thin line. Being obedient, but by golly, you're not going to get one more than I have to have. Or do you say, man, leave that thing an acre on the edges. Just let people come and have it. Do you fix your life in such a way as to say, God, I want to give you my first, but I also want to fix our life in such a way where we leave as much margin on the outside that God allows me to be generous in a way that I don't have to call up the elder board and say, what's our benevolence fund have to be able to do whatever? Just take care of it according to your own means. Serve the church and work together as a church to bless other churches as we serve that. That's the, that's the picture of the New Testament. What would happen if we leveraged our resources for the benefit of other churches? The brother says I'm being long, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move it on. Here's the last one. Acts chapter uh, 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 1 says this. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who, was, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, we know as Paul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on him, they sent them away. And then look at the next verse. So being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. You praise God for this verse because the reason you're sitting in uh, Peninsula Grace Church today believing in Jesus Christ is because the church in Antioch listened to the Holy Spirit and sent Paul and Barnabas to go evangelize amongst the Gentiles of the world, which rippled generation upon generation upon generation to you. This church, listening to God, changed the course of Christian history. That's a big deal, y'all. That's a big deal. What would happen if we prayerfully dedicated our best to be sent to where Christ isn't loved? What would happen if we as churches did the same thing with our leadership that we're claiming we want to do with our resources and sent our best? Claim the gospel where Jesus is not loved. Pastor John Piper in his uh, book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says this. He says, 
Missions exists because worship doesn't. We have to do missions because there's places where people are born, live their life, and die never knowing that Jesus is worthy of all glory, that He loved them, that He gave His life for them, that regardless of their level of rebellion, regardless of what kind of sin they have committed, regardless of where they uh, are in that, Jesus loves them and gave His life to substitute their rebellion for His holiness, for His grace, and they'll never hear it. They'll never hear it. Unless we send our best, unless we are prayerful about the people that are within us, um, Dr. David Platt, another missiologist, wrote some incredible books uh, on the subject of missions and things like that, recounted uh, early on in his ministry, he was raising funds for, I think he was going on a mission trip somewhere and he needed to be able to raise funds. And he was speaking at a church and he was talking about all these passion needs and this people group and this is what they need, all those kind of things. And the pastor got up afterwards, put his hand on, on David's shoulder and was talking to this congregation, older, older congregation. It was a little bit of a, of a museum kind of church. And he looked at him and he said, friends, we, we need to dig deep. We need, to, we need to support this brother. We need to rally around. We need to, we need to give you know, whatever we can so that he can go and do that. And I'm going to tell you what, if, if you won't do that, if you won't give generously, if you won't give sacrificially, then I'm going to pray that God's going to call your grandchildren to go on the mission field. David started to weep. Because what ought we to be praying? Fields are white under the harvest. Pray to the Father that He'll send laborers to the field. They need it. How can they believe in Him and whom they have not heard? How can they, uh, how can they answer the call unless they have a preacher? How can they have a preacher unless He's sent? What would happen if we intentionally looked amongst ourselves and said, God, Raise us up. Just blow the Moravians out of the water. Let's tell people with this gracious message of Jesus. It's incredible. This isn't about us saying, I want to make a name for myself. I want you to know who I am because of what I did for Jesus. God help us if that ever starts to get into our soul but let us go and preach the gospel. Die. Be remembered by Jesus as we stand before him and he says, well done. Good and, I love this, Jesus didn't look at those guys and say, well done, good and successful servants. What did he say? Faithful. God, we need faithful people not in it for their own glory. They're not in it for their own name. We need churches that are not in it for their own name. We need believers that say, I don't care if nobody ever hears of me. But Jesus knows the gospel's too good for us to keep to ourselves. Friends, Jesus looks at you and says, Go, make disciples. And he tells you, Church, send make disciples. Let me pray for you. Father, we're so 
incredibly grateful for your word. It's heavy. It's good. We need to be knocked out of our comfort zone. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking right now, you'd speak loudly to our hearts. Some here today that aren't Christians. It's too big of a group for there not to be people here that don't, don't know and love you. Holy Spirit, awaken in their heart the reality of the goodness of Jesus. They've been trying to save themselves by following religion or whatever. Show them their hearts dead. Show them Jesus and bring them to life. And God, there's others that are here that are just comfortable. It's a good church. Got a great family, great things. Holy Spirit, right now, give them supernatural eyes to see the people around them. Cause their mouths to have those hard conversations, good and right. Tell them the hope that is within them. God, there's some in this church that you're going to send out of here. This church is going to raise up support and, and launch to go plant churches, share the gospel amongst unreached peoples. We pray that they would bear much fruit in their life. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond and worship together.